0: Hey there, this is Lieutenant Stockwell. If you're enjoying this audio fiction adventure of that bonehead, August Reardon, why not support the author and pre-order a copy of his latest Reardon book, Geisha Confidential. Follow the link in the episode description. Geisha Confidential by Mark Coggins Stockwell says buy it. Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page. Says best selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 30 All I Want for Christmas. I opened the door and herded Gretchen inside. She fell on the couch and brought both arms up to wrap around her head. Why don't you carry a cell phone, August? This never would have happened if Chris or I could have reached you. I sat down beside her. I realized this was the first time she'd been back to my apartment since we broke up. It was a depressing thought. I don't think it would have mattered, Gretchen, I said. I've been unconscious for the last 18 hours. She let her arms drop and turned to stare at me a genuine look of concern in her eyes. She sniffed and wrinkled her nose. You smell awful. Where in the world have you been? It's not important. Tell me what makes you think Chris was kidnapped. He got an invitation from someone he met through his website. They wanted to meet him. I felt my face go stiff. What happened? The guy who wrote him, he said his name was Jimmy. He invited Chris for a drink. Chris called the office to tell you about it. He wanted you to be there to question him when he showed up. And when he couldn't get hold of me? Gretchen looked down to the laptop. She squared it carefully on her knees. We talked about it. I told him it was too dangerous. He said I was being silly and he didn't want to miss the opportunity or spook the guy. So we compromised. Chris told the guy he would meet him for coffee during the day. We figured that would be safe. Much better than meeting him at some bar at night. I nodded slowly waiting for the punchline, and knowing I was going to hate it. And then... Gretchen slapped her hands down hard on the laptop. I let him go. I should have gone with him, but Bonnaker had an important policy writer he needed finished. I was home, changing for my date before I even thought of it again. And then I realized I hadn't heard back from Chris. I called him at all his numbers, but he didn't answer. I got desperate. Dennis came to pick me up and I made him drive me over to Chris's house he wasn't there. But that by itself... No, August, let me finish. We went over to the coffee shop where he was going to meet the guy. It's a little family-owned spot in the marina. The owner remembered Chris, said he was one of the best-looking women he'd ever seen in the place. He said Chris met a man there for a cappuccino, but Chris got ill. The owner helped the man walk Chris out to his van. I looked at her for a long moment. The description fit the pattern I'd hypothesized for Cricket. Sounds like he was drugged. That's what we thought. Dennis said there are certain drugs that... Yes, I know. I just had some first-hand experience with one. Did you get anything else to go on? A description of the guy who took Chris? Anything about the van? She looked hurt. I knew you were going to blame me. I know I should have gone with him, but I really didn't think anything could happen in a public place. I took hold of her hand. It was cold and trembly. Gretchen, calm down. I'm not blaming you. I'm just looking for something to help find him. She pulled her hand away. She flipped open the laptop and pressed the power button. We didn't think to ask the owner for a description. He did mention that the van was old and beat up. One of those VW camper buses. He thought it was funny that such a good-looking girl would be seeing a guy with that kind of car. All right, but why are you starting your laptop? Because there's one other thing. You remember how Chris had been sending me pictures from his cell phone? I thought back to the car filled with dirt. Yes. He sent me one at about five this afternoon. I didn't look at it until much later, after I started worrying about him. When was his date at the coffee shop? 2.30. He must have sent it after he'd been kidnapped. There was no message, just the picture. She typed something on the keyboard and fiddled with the built-in mouse. She pushed the computer onto my lap. Look, does that mean anything to you? It was a picture taken inside a small room, or a camper van. No people were visible, but you could see through the window to the outside. The profile and several supporting pillars of an elevated freeway were visible. One of the pillars had graffiti on it. A large peace sign. I picked up the laptop and held the screen close to my face. A thrill ran through me. I know where this is. Gretchen clutched her hands together. Where? It's near the train station at 22nd and Pennsylvania. A lot of homeless people camp out there. Some of them in RVs and camper vans. I handed the computer back. I went into the bedroom and took the Glock and its holster off the bedpost. Gretchen came to stand in the doorway as I buckled it on. She bit her lip. What can I do? Call the cops. Get them to send a car over there. Make up a story if the truth sounds too goofy. Okay. She dodged out of the way as I passed into the living room. I'd reached the apartment door by the time she spoke again. August, please be careful. Don't let me lose two of the men I love most. It was quiet when I got to 22nd in Pennsylvania. Eerily quiet. It was too early for train commuters, and the traffic on Highway 280 was so light that you could hear individual cars bumping over the seams in the roadway overhead. I had no way of knowing that the police car Gretchen had summoned had already come and gone. Most of the homeless were camped about a block away from the train station in a distinctly ungated community directly beneath the freeway overpass. Keeping up with the Joneses in this neighborhood meant having a lean-to, cardboard box or tarp to sleep under, a Safeway shopping cart to haul around your possessions, and a bottle of Thunderbird or Mad Dog 2020 for recreation and use as a soporific. As I walked by the encampment after ditching Stockwell's explorer near the station, it appeared that all the residents had self-medicated themselves into a sound stupor. There was so little stirring, in fact, that an evil-looking crow felt emboldened enough to perch on the handle of one of the shopping carts, surveying the grounds of the littered encampment for food. He held me in his beady black eye as I approached, and then took off with an irritated caw when I drew too near. Across the street, parked along a chain-link fence that surrounded a San Francisco muni bus yard, were the upwardly Mobile, or perhaps just Mobile, domiciles of the community. There was an old Winnebago with crudely painted zebra stripes and tires so bald that you could see the steel belt popping through in patches. There were also a pair of 1970s vintage VW camper vans, the Westphalia model, parked nose-to-nose. The one on the left had its pop-top open, allowing the roof to hinge up several feet higher with a tent-like structure of canvas encasing the back and sides. The one on the right had a for-sale sign. Both had sunshades blocking the front windows and curtains drawn on all the others. And again, there was no sign of life or activity within. I crept up to the bus on the left, figuring that if Cricket was in one of the vans with Chris, he would have opened the pop-top to provide more space. I unholstered the Glock and put my hand to the passenger door handle. Locked. I made a tour around the van, trying the driver's side door, the one in the back, and finally the big sliding door, and that didn't buy me anything either. I was pondering the trade-offs involved in smashing the passenger door window with a rock when a gust of wind caused the fabric in the pop-top to flap, drawing my attention. I realized it was a weaker link than the window, and getting through it would be a lot quieter too. I walked back to the homeless encampment and liberated a plastic milk crate that was being used as a camp stool and set it down by the side of the van. Pulling my knife from the harness on my ankle, I stepped onto the crate. The fabric for the pop-top was secured to the roof with an aluminum molding, and it was a relatively easy task to poke the knife through the canvas and slice cleanly along the molding, even while I held the Glock ready with my other hand. I had cut about a foot when I felt something move inside the van. I stepped off the carton and crept to the back of the van. I crouched there for a good two minutes, feeling foolish and exposed, but no one came out and I heard no further movements. I returned to my post on the crate. When the cut measured about two feet, it was long enough for me to peel the canvas up and peep into the interior. There was not much to see. The only signs of occupation were an empty bedroll, a candle and an old tuna can, and a paperback book. I spread the slit wider and canted my head along the roof to see further into the back. It was then I heard the passenger side door latch pop open. Got yourself a new gun, I see. I like the old one better. I twisted my head around to find Stockwell's Colt 44 Special being pointed squarely at my back. It was held by the husky kid who I'd seen coming out of the office door at the art school the same one who'd passed me the note about Wesson's exhibit at the SF MoMA. He was in his stocking feet, and he was wearing sweatpants and a T-shirt. His well-muscled arms bulged out of the shirt, smooth and hairless as a marble statue. When I didn't say anything, he smiled. It made his face look almost cherubic. I thought you'd be on your way to the landfill. I guess you were still breathing after all. I moved my feet to turn towards him. None of that, he said sharply. Why don't you drop the gun and the knife into the nice hole you cut into my camper top? That will keep him out of harm's way. I pushed the Glock and the knife through the slit in the canvas. They clattered down the side of the sliding door. My mouth suddenly felt very dry, and my hands were visibly shaking. It seems like you've had a number of dosage problems, Cricket, I said as calmly as I could. Not killing people when you wanted to, killing others when you didn't. The Japanese girl was one you didn't mean to kill, wasn't she? Shut up and step off the crate. I hesitated. He came up to take hold of my belt line and yanked me to the ground. He stood just behind me now with a gun to my left ear. What about Britta, I said. Did you get the dosage right with her? He laughed and I could feel his breath tickling the back of my neck. Suddenly his right arm was around my throat again, choking me like before. You mean Chris, not Britta, don't you, Mr. Reardon? Maybe it was my weakened condition, or maybe it was my panic at being caught in the very same situation as before, but my vision started to dim almost immediately. My legs and arms began to tingle, and a ringing noise filled my ears. I felt myself being dragged backward again. No special K this time, Mr. Reardon, said Cricket, almost gently. Just the big squeeze. I struggled again with a massive forearm that locked around my neck, and again my fingers found no purchase. My tongue cleaved to the roof of my mouth. I felt the sharp edge of the cracked plate cut into it. And that was the seed of my salvation. With only a vague idea of what I hoped to accomplish, I pried the plate out of my mouth. I spread it open along a crack like a wishbone, popping out one of the fake teeth and exposing the sharp edge of the molded material. I slashed with it over my shoulder. There was a howl in my right ear, and the arm around my neck loosened slightly. I felt something warm run down my fingers. The arm fell away entirely. I reeled against the van, turning to face Cricket. He was hunched over near the back tire, holding his hand to his right eye. Blood ran through his fingers. You fucking cut my eye, he wailed. He still held the colt, and showed now that he hadn't forgotten it. He aimed it at my chest, squeezed the trigger. Neither of us got what we expected. I got a jolt of adrenaline. He got a whitened knuckle from pulling hard against the single action trigger without first cocking the revolver. He cursed and fumbled for the hammer. I bolted for the open van door, focused only on recovering the Glock. I piled into the passenger seat and locked the door behind me. There was no one else inside but me. If Chris was still at the encampment, he had to be in the other van. I slithered past the console and the gear shift, lunging to the spot below the slice and the pop-top. I snatched up the Glock from the carpet, and that's when the shooting started. There was a sharp report and a slug came tearing through the side door of the van about three feet above me. It passed through the driver's seat, embedding itself in the dashboard. While the Colt was an awkward gun, it was a powerful one. A bullet from it can easily penetrate multiple layers of the cheap sheet metal in the van. I doubted my 9mm would even go through one. I raised my hand to window level and pumped several rounds through the glass towards the back of the van where I imagined Cricket must be, then rolled quickly to my right. A booming shot followed, bisecting the space I had just occupied a moment before. The angle of fire had changed. The shot followed a course almost perpendicular to the van, suggesting that Cricket had moved towards the front. Returning fire now meant risking a shot straight into the homeless encampment. It seemed a losing proposition anyway, given my position and the mismatch in firepower. My knife gleamed dully on the carpet next to my face. I snatched it up and jumped on the rickety built-in table against the far wall. Another shot crashed through the van, the slug passing just below the table and hitting the back wall with a tremendous thump. I stabbed the knife into the canvas of the pop-top slicing an opening about three feet long on the far side. Then I worked the Glock again. Two shots were enough to vaporize the back windows, hopefully drawing Cricket's attention that way. I pushed myself through the slit in the canvas and flopped down between the van and the chain-link fence, hammering my shoulder as I hit the asphalt. Another shot from Cricket's revolver covered the noise of my fall. I couldn't tell where it went. What I could tell was that he was standing opposite the right rear tire, I scurried underneath the van, coming to a rest about a foot away from the plastic crate. Maybe Cricket thought he had hit me, or maybe he was worried about using more bullets. I had counted four shots so far, but he lingered at the back for a long moment and then crept forward towards the crate. He put his foot on it, apparently intending to risk a peek through the original hole I'd made. I put the Glock about an inch from his ankle and pulled the trigger. Blood and bone chips sprayed back on my hand, Cricket shrieked. He reached down to clutch his ankle, lost his balance, and toppled to the asphalt. By reflex or design, his fingers tightened again on the trigger of the revolver. A shot went zinging over the roof of the van. Clearly in tremendous pain, and with the blood still flowing from the wound to his face, he struggled to level the revolver at my head. I fired three shots in quick succession, tattooing him from his belly button to his sternum. He sagged into the ground like a deflated pool toy, Stockwell's Colt 45 sloughing out of his hand to the asphalt. I found Chris hogtied on the floor of the other VW van. He had been wearing a wig, which was lying in a wad on the floor, and a dress, which was peeled down to his waist. The iridescent wing of a butterfly tattoo had been started on his shoulder, but at that point Cricket evidently realized he had the wrong sex of canvas. When I cut through Chris's bonds and removed the duct tape from his mouth, the first thing he said to me wasn't, Thank God! or, Boy, am I glad to see you! It was, What happened to your teeth? I had an overwhelming urge to tie him back up again, but the arrival of the SFPD prevented me from acting on it. You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book Mystery Scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.